So chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, how many of you were in the second service this morning and you heard about the wiles of the devil? If you didn't get that CD, you ought to get that CD. But today we're going to begin in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. But if you would, go back to the very first, verse 12, where Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities. Secondly, against powers. Third, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And tonight, I want us to begin by talking about these four categories. So get ready to take some notes. Are you ready? Four categories, and I believe our cameraman's projecting on the screen to help you. Is that okay? Can you see that okay, or would you prefer red? Think red would be better? All right, so Paul now begins to describe for us what he knows about the spirit realm. And in fact, when you consider the writings of the Apostle Paul, it's really not accidental that he was chosen to be the man that he was. Through his years and years of study, he had in his mind a vast repertoire of Greek language. And when the Holy Spirit began to inspire the scriptures through the Apostle Paul, there was such a vocabulary, such a knowledge that the Holy Spirit could reach into his mind and could extract the words which were needed in order for him to pen the words of the New Testament. Interesting that God did not choose someone uneducated to write the New Testament, but chose someone that would have a wide vocabulary, who would understand culture, who would understand the secular activities of the day. And in fact, when the New Testament began, I don't know if you've ever considered this, there was no New Testament terminology. It did not exist. There was no New Testament language. The church had never existed. In fact, the word church had never been used in a religious connotation. The word church was a purely political word. Almost every word in the New Testament was borrowed from a secular source and adapted for spiritual purposes. And when you come to these verses, we find that the Apostle Paul begins to speak with language borrowed from the military, actually, which describes specific positions of power which normally you would find in a military, but now it's almost as though the spirit realm has opened and Paul has seen through to the other side, and now he begins to tell us by revelation how Satan's kingdom is set up and how it is organized. And he's not giving us this information to scare us, He's giving this information to prepare us. Say to your neighbor, not to scare us, but to prepare us. If you understand that your foe is highly organized, it might make a difference in how you deal with your foe. 
And so now as Paul begins to write, he shows us the vast organization which Satan has. Now there's one thing we have to understand about Satan, and that is that he is not original. He doesn't create anything of his own accord. Everything he does is a copy or a perversion. Well, where do you think Satan learned all of this organization? He learned it from heaven. And in fact, here what you have is almost a replication of what we have in heaven, where there are archangels, and then there are angels, and then there are lesser angels. There are all different kinds of categories of angels in heaven, amazing organization. We know the Bible tells us clearly that God is a God of order. So when Satan fell and took part of those angels with him, took the powers that rebelled with him, he simply began to replicate the organization which he had seen earlier. And we find at the very top of Satan's domain there is a group called, what is it? Principalities. I don't know if this is going to work. The Greek word Arcus. This Greek word Arcus is literally the word for a prince or a principality. It describes the very highest ranking authorities. It could be used to describe the ruler of a nation or it could be used to describe the chief generals of an army. And so Paul now tells us at the very top of Satan's domain are principalities or ruling spirits. Ruling spirits. Now, how many of you remember the book of Daniel? When the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel set his heart to pray, and he began to fast. And because of that today, the first of the year, everybody does a Daniel fast. But how many of you remember what happened at the end of 21 days? An angel came. And do you remember what the angel said? Daniel I'm come because of your prayers which were heard the first day that you prayed. The first day that angel was dispatched. But that angel did not show up for 21 days. Now, how many of you would say that's a pretty lengthy trip for an angel? Angels who are ministers who can just show up. They're spirits. They can appear and disappear. But it took this angel 21 days to arrive to Daniel. Now that's an amazing thing. And he said to Daniel, I would have been here sooner. But on my way, I had to fight with the prince of Persia. Well, where was Daniel? He was in Babylon, which was Persia. That is exactly where he was. And this angel describes a high-ranking, what I would call ruling or territorial spirit, which was over the entire region of Persia, and hence the angel called it the Prince of Persia. These are high-ranking, high-level, ruling what some would call territorial spirits. I'm quite convinced, as I look at Russia, that there is a territorial spirit which has historically ruled over the nation of Russia. It doesn't matter what the face of the leader is, it is the same predominant spirit which rules century after century. That is a spiritual thing. And this is one... Pastor Bob, did you get a black marker? I'm telling you, that's a good man. Thank you. This is one reason why our activities in the Middle East, in Iraq, and in those other areas, will not be completely successful. You cannot shoot bullets at principalities. 
How many of you have noticed that when the United States has gone in with an operation and then vacated, it seems like the same thing just keeps flooding in again? That's because if all you deal with is flesh and blood, the root of the problem is still there. There is a ruling principality which is over that region. And until that ruling principality is dealt with, it will continue to creep back in over and over and over. Now, it would be interesting for you to ask and to think about it, is there any kind of a ruling principality which has tried to operate over the United States? And if there is, what is the name of that? You know, we just had a celebration called the 4th of July. Americans love to not be told what to do. And it kind of makes me wonder maybe if there's a spirit of rebellion that might be over the United States. Is that possible? I don't know. It's just a possibility. I'm not even making a suggestion. But what would that spirit be? And actually, this is a very good thing for you to consider if you're going into a new place to do a work. For instance, coming into Russia, it was very important for me not just to observe what I see with my eyes, but what is the spiritual status working behind the scenes that keeps replicating this over and over and over and over and over. Otherwise, I'm just dealing with symptomatic problems. And not only are there ruling spirits over vast territories, but next he says what? Powers. Okay, we're going to check out Pastor Bob's test. The word powers, are you ready? Oh, Pastor Bob, it didn't work. Okay, we're going to try green. Is the word ex, oh, that's the best, exousias. This word exousias describes delegated license, delegated license, and it would describe more localized powers like a mayor or a governor. Or now we find, in addition to these high-ranking regional spirits, then they condense locally where they have received authority to dominate specific concrete local regions. And then Paul pulls a word out of the hat, which is so confusing, it took me years to understand this word. Rulers of the darkness of this world. Well, rulers of the darkness of this world is a very interesting Greek word, the word kata. Uh, excuse me. Kateros. I'm sorry, cosmo kateros. Cosmo. Now, when you hear the word cosmo, do you hear another word in that? Cosmos. The word cosmos describes order or arrangement. Write that down if you're taking notes. It's order or arrangement. The word krateros is from the word kratos, which is the word for power. By itself, it describes what I would call raw power. But when you take the word kratos and on the front of it, you add the word cosmos, it forms the word cosmokraterus, which describes power that is organized, power that is harnessed, power that is arranged. And this is the word which was used to describe the training of military troops. The training of military troops. Well, what is the training of military troops? 
It's assembling together raw power, young men, disconnected. But if you could harness them, if you could organize them, assemble them, then focus them, then they become a united force. And in fact, this was the Greek word which was used in the ancient Greek literature to describe boot camps or military training centers. Well, when you look at what Paul's doing here, it would be fitting that he would use another military word here because at the top he talks about archos, a ruling spirit, or generals. Then he talks about exousias, which would be a localized powers. And then you come down to the next level. This word is very important, cosmokrateros, which describes almost the effect of training demons to do what they do, which means demon spirits don't do what they do accidentally. They've been put through some kind of training to do what they do. Now, the first time I saw this word, was when we were still studying the university. And back in those days, I was listening to teaching tapes, particularly loved Derek Prince, because I appreciated his intelligent approach to the Word of God. And I began to search for anyone who could explain to me the use of this word krosmokrateros, which in Greek literature would describe a military training camp. What in the world does that have to do with principalities and powers and everything in verse 12? How does that fit into this verse? And it seemed to me, just based on the linguistic use of this word, forget interpretation, forget everything else, just on the word, that this word can only mean a training center for troops. Well, I asked people, have you ever heard anything like this? I asked Bible teachers, can you tell me what this word means in the context of this verse? No one could explain. So I put it on the shelf, and years went by. And back when Denise and I were first starting our traveling ministry, Pastor Bob had recommended me to church, preach in a church out in western Oklahoma in the Panhandle. I forget what the name of that big town is out there. Been gone too long. What's the, what's the big one out on the panhandle? You're in the wrong state, Cindy. <laughs> one of the big ones out there in the panhandle. Actually, there are no big ones in the panhandle, but it's one of the bigger ones. There's a university in that town. What's? Okay, one of them. So Denise and I went into this meeting. Thank you, Pastor Bob. <laughs> and at the end of the meeting, we decided we would pray for the sick. And a man and woman came forward who were not believers. They were not saved. They did not know our Christian language. They could have never made this up. They had never been in a charismatic meeting. They didn't even like being there. But when I said we would pray for the sick, they came forward. And maybe you've heard me tell this story before. The man had his hands behind his back and the wife had her hands in her pockets. How many of you have heard this story before? Good, not many of you. I said, how may I pray for you? The man pulled his hands out from behind his back and it looked like someone had intentionally deformed his hands. I had never seen anything like it. It was like a mass of flesh stuck on the ends of his limbs. And I said, what happened to you? He said, well, I don't know how to explain this. 
I'm going to tell you exactly what I told the doctor. They all think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you the truth. He said, I felt something come on my hands. He said, within a short period of time, my hands begin to hurt, and they begin to twist. And he said, for years, they've been trying to correct this with surgery and treatment. And he said, when my hands were finally like this, I felt it lift off of me and leave me. Well, I was stunned. For an unbeliever to use that kind of language in describing something very spiritual, Next to him was her wife, and her hands were in her pockets. I said, and why have you come for prayer? She said, well, there's a part of the story my husband didn't tell you. And she pulled her hands out, and they were almost exact copies of her husband's hands. And she said, when the spirit lifted, when that thing lifted off of him, it came on me. And she said, when my hands were ruined, it lifted off of me, and it left me. And when I was standing in front of them in that prayer line, the Holy Spirit reached deep into my mind and jerked out this word, cosmocrateros, which I had studied, which was a military boot camp, a training center where soldiers are taught how to use their weapons. And I saw in front of me a spirit of affliction, specialized. And when it was finished with the one, it detached and moved to the next and did identically the same thing. And you know what that woman's last words were to me? She said, I don't know where that thing went when it left me, but I feel very sorry for their hands. She had a perception that this was something that was moving from her husband to her and to someone else. Now, I'm going to tell you something that is very strange, but I confirmed it today. I looked it up on the Internet. <laughs> on a reliable source. <laughs> Do you remember when the Bushes, the first Bushes were in the White House? Do you remember that Barbara Bush was diagnosed? It all happened at the same time of this event out in wherever we were in western Oklahoma. Barbara Bush was diagnosed with a thyroid problem. Remember, that's called Graves' disease. It's a very unusual thyroid problem. In a very short period of time, within two months, President Bush was diagnosed with exactly the same problem. Now, the article that I read today said it's almost medically out of bounds to even dream that two people in the same house could be diagnosed with the same thing or that it would happen within a two-month period of time. In the next two months, do you remember that the Bushes had a Cocker Spaniel named Millie? It was announced that Millie, the dog, had been diagnosed with the same thyroid problem that the president had and Barbara Bush had. And I said to Denise, that is a spirit of affliction that is moving through that house. That's what it is. And I begin to think of how many times I've seen sicknesses pass through a household. It's like something spiritual attaches itself to that family, and it just passes from one to the next to the next. 
And I begin to understand that there are demon spirits, perhaps not all, but some that are trained to do what they do. I believe there are demon spirits of addiction, and that is what they are. And in fact, back in the days of the tent revival, do you remember when A.A. Allen was preaching and Brother Roberts, everybody under the tent, they would cast out spirits of nicotine. Do you remember that? They were right. They were spirits of nicotine, which would go from one person to another person. They would cast out spirits of alcohol, spirits which would cause people's genetic tendencies to lean toward alcoholism. Now, those old evangelistic preachers may not have been highly educated, but they knew the realm of the spirit, and they called those things by name and cast them out and broke their powers. Now, the good news is, we don't have to be subject to these things. And Paul's telling us about this so that we can stand against it. We don't have to be a victim to these things. But if all you deal with is flesh and blood, which means take medication, nothing against medication, but if that's all that you do, or if all you do is read the books, if you do everything that is natural, but you never deal with the real source, which can possibly be working behind the scenes, then all the natural things you do, which are good and are reasonable, will not bring a permanent result because there is a spiritual force which is also at work. And then finally, Paul says, spiritual wickedness in high places. Wickedness is the word poneros. The word poneros describes something that is malevolent. It describes the attitude of these spirits. Once they've been trained, they are dispatched. And unfortunately, the King James translation says spiritual wickedness in what? High places. But in fact, there are multiple realms of heaven. I'm sure that you know that because the Yandians have been your pastors. So here we have the earth, and above the earth is the? First heaven, that's where we live. Then the Bible talks about the second heaven. And then there is the third heaven, Paul tells us in Corinthians 13, that he went there. And these principalities and powers dwell in this realm, right around this realm, which is why when the angel came to answer Daniel, he had to fight through all of this for 21 days in order to answer Daniel's prayer. But here's the thing. When you get to spiritual wickedness in high places, it describes the very lowest realm. It's actually the air below the mountaintops. That's what the Greek word means. Which means these poneros, these malevolent spirits, once they have been trained, are then dispatched not to Mars. There's nobody out there for them to be malevolent with but they are dispatched into the lower regions of the air, or you could translate it into the atmosphere that we breathe. They come where they can touch human beings. They come where they can inject thoughts into people's minds. This is where they come. And interesting, the early church fathers wrote that the lower, denser regions of the air were thickly populated. That is an exact quote, thickly populated with unclean, invisible spirits. And these are these spirits which have been dispatched against the human civilization, the human race. Now, Paul also writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. 
And listen to what he says about us and about the lost world. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Can you say amen to that? Verse 2, wherein in time past, the Greek is the word poth, and it means back then. It's pointing to a specific place, a specific time in the past. I say it's almost like Paul pulls out a photograph from his wallet and says, hey, do you remember what you guys used to look like back then? That's what this means, the word pothen. He's pointing backward to who we were before Christ. Wherein in time past, or a literal translation would be, back then you walked according to the what? Course of this world. The word walked is the word kata. The word kata means to be dominated. So you would translate it, you were dominated by the course of this world according to... According to is, again, the word kata, being dominated by the what? What does it say? The prince of the power of the air. Now, notice that Paul did not argue that Satan was a prince. Even Jesus recognized that Satan was a prince. In the Gospel of John, he said, the prince of this world is coming. Jesus recognized his authority. Even if it was an evil authority, Jesus and God always recognizes authority. And Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming. Accrediting Satan with a certain measure of power as a prince. And now in this verse, he's called the prince of the power of the what? Air, that word air again, describes these lower, denser regions of the air. And then it says, what's the next phrase? The spirit that now does what? Works, that word works, is the word energize. If you want to know why people do what they do, because there is an invisible source which is energizing those that are without Christ. You want to know how Hitler did what he did? He was energized. Now, we understand that. But let's talk about you before Christ. Why in the world did you do the crazy, horrible things you did before Christ? Behaved like an animal. Why? Because the prince of the power of the air was energizing. He was the driving force working behind the scenes. Well, now go back to chapter 6. This is why people do what they do. First of all, they're unsaved. Secondly, there's an energizing force that they are unaware of. Let me tell you, friends, it doesn't take great discernment to see that there is a spirit of lawlessness that's working in the world today. There is an energizing force which is trying to change the environment so that we can't declare what we believe and we have to recognize what we don't believe. It's trying to change the landscape. And you may look and say, how in the world are these changes taking place before our eyes? It's because there is an energizing force that is working behind the scenes, trying to create a world of lawlessness, which will then eventually receive a, a man of lawlessness. You see, society has to be changed before it will receive the man of lawlessness. A lawful society would never receive him. 
So the prince of the power of the air and the spirits working in conjunction with him are energizing things that we would never dream could be energized. The courts are making decisions we would have never imagined. People are changing their beliefs to match the culture rather than bring the gospel to change the culture. Even churches that we love are preaching things that's hard to believe and we wonder what in the world is wrong with people. It is a major assault of spiritual warfare. Those low-level demons trying to press, touch, influence, inject. Well, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But, now what's that next word? Against. Everybody say against. Notice he repeats this word against over and over and over and over and over in this verse. That is not necessary. It was not necessary. Unless he was really trying to make a point. And the word against is not even the normal word for against. The word normally we would use would be the word anti. Everybody knows the word anti. That means against. But in this particular case, Paul uses the word pros. And the word pros means against, but it means against in a very different way. For instance, this word pros is used in John 1. One, to describe the relationship between the members of the Trinity. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, what does it say? With God. That word with is this word pros. It describes such an intimacy between God and the Son that they are nearly breathing upon each other's face. In the beginning was the Word, and one expositor has translated, and the Word was face to face with God. But now Paul borrows this same word and uses it to say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but pros. Face to face with principalities, pros, face to face with powers, pros, face to face against the rulers of the darkness of this world, pros, face to face with spiritual wickedness in high places. And then to really rank it up to the next level of seriousness, he uses the word wrestle. Everybody say wrestle. Well, the word wrestle is a real bad translation. And the reason we have a bad translation is because it's a sporting word and the sport which he used to describe does not exist in today's world. It doesn't exist. So if he had tried to use the word, the translators, the word, the real word, nobody would have understood it. So I'm going to explain to you what this word is. It is the word pale, which means to struggle. But from this word pale, we get a place called the palestra. Does anybody know what a palestra is? Palestra. Every city side by side had a gymnasium and it was connected to the palestra. The gymnasium is where the students learned. It's where they worked with their teachers. There was a hall leading to the next building which was called the palestra. Pala from Pali, which means this was a house of conflict, or this was a house of combat. And in this building 
were primarily three sports. Three sports. This is why this is so, so difficult to translate this word. Number one, there were boxers. Write this down if you're taking notes. There were boxers. Number two, there were wrestlers. Number three, there were pancreatus, pancration. All of these sports were conducted in the nude. Essentially, there were no rules to the game, but every game was a little different. For instance, the boxers wore gloves that started at the elbow. They were wrapped around the arm, usually about 16 feet of leather. And when it came to the knuckles, there was a small blade which was affixed. We would call it a stub nail to every one of the knuckles so that when you dealt a blow to your opponent, it was a ghastly, bloodly blow. And that's why when you look at the, ancient, the, the artwork of the ancient Greeks, especially their vases, which depicted every facet of life, you see boxers with ears missing. You see boxers with noses missing, and it's because they were fighting Freddy Krueger. I mean, it was a very violent thing. These were men who essentially had little knives attached to the ends of their knuckles, and they would fight so hard it was very possible that one could die in the match. We have one record from the New Testament times of a boxer who hit the other boxer so hard in the mouth that it knocked out all of his front teeth. Rather than spit out his teeth and alert the enemy that he had been wounded, he chose to swallow his teeth and keep fighting. That's the kind of conflict we're talking about. Then there were wrestlers. Oh, this makes championship wrestling look like something from preschool because they could break backs, gouge eyes, pull tongues out of heads. There were no rules to the game except somebody needs to win and somebody needs to fall. And then there was Pancration, and interesting, it was the worst of all three, and this one is being resurrected in our world today. If you turn on your TV, sometimes you can catch TV programs with Pancration. It is absolutely horrific to see what these people do to each other. Now, if I say to you the word football, do you all have a picture of that in your mind? Or do I need to stop and tell you for 30 minutes what is football? Why don't I need to tell you? Because you're Americans. And in fact, we even have our own style of football. The rest of the world doesn't have American football. American football is very specific. In the rest of the world, when they play football, they don't knock people flat and try to kill each other. They all stay upright on their feet. But American football is very specific. And we all watch the Super Bowl, and we know this because it is one of the Idols in our culture. <laughs> right? Okay, so we all got it about football. When Paul's readers saw this word, guess what? It was like the word football. He didn't have to stop and say, now let me tell you what I mean, because they all knew these fighters. How could you live in a city with these men 
and not know. As you see people walking on the streets who have no ear, who have no nose, people who have blood gashed and flowing out of their bodies, someone who doesn't have an eye. These are people who have fought in the palestra. Now Paul uses this word at the first of this text when he says, for we wrestle which immediately would cause every reader to set up straight and say, what, what did you say? Did he say the word pale? We're talking about blood spilling, back snapping, eye gouging. That's the way he begins the verse. Not to scare us, but to what? Prepare us. And in fact, when you read it in the Greek, it says the wrestle is, it says first of all to us, implying that every one of us at some point in our journey, we're going to be pulled into a conflict whether we like it or not. Shutting your eyes and hoping this will never happen will not take care of this. It's there. It's there whether you recognize it or not. We are feeling the effects of it at this moment all across this country. Something is happening. It is there. Even if it's not a personal assault, we are living in an environment that is under assault. And Paul says at some point along the way, this wrestle will be to us. We will be pulled into this. And then he says, let me make sure you understand what I'm talking about so you'll take me more seriously. And then he begins to describe how this kingdom is aligned. At the top are ruling territorial spirits, then more localized, the word exousias. Then we find the word cosmocrateros, Satan so serious about the victimizing of human beings that he takes no chance. Spirits are trained. They are dispatched. And I say that their motto is kill, steal, and destroy. Those are the words on their lips as they are dispatched into the lower realms where they attack families and teenagers and adults and churches and governments trying to influence and inject themselves. Now, why in the world did he give us all of that? One woman said to me after I taught on this years ago, I will never come to one of your services again. You just scared the living daylights out of me. Well, that's not the purpose of scriptures. God hadn't given us a spirit of fear. But neither does God want us to be stupid and uninformed about our opponent. And the problem is, as I said to the Lord one day, why does it seem the devil wins more victories than the church? Have any of you ever wondered that? Why does it seem the devil kills more people with cancer than we see people healed of cancer? Why? That disturbs me. Why do we see our environment being assaulted right in front of our eyes? And it doesn't seem the church is yet yielding the victory. Why? If we have more authority, and we do, we do. 
If we do, then why does it seem that side is winning more of the battles? And the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. And said, because the devil has three things the church does not have. I said, and what is that? And the Holy Spirit answered me. Commitment, organization, and discipline. Are you kidding? You offend a few people, say something you don't like, they are out the door on the way to another church. What kind of organization are we talking about? People get their feelings hurt while we're supposed to be casting out devils. How are you going to cast out a devil if you can't even control your own emotions about somebody else? But if you look at this, Hey, the devil is very committed. He's been working a plan for a very long time. In fact, think of this. He's been working 6,000 years to bring the world to a place where he could finally have an age of lawlessness and produce a man of lawlessness. People say conspiracy theory. Yeah, big one. It's been going on for about 6,000 years. Devil's been working behind the scenes. I'm telling you, friends, he's committed about what he's doing when most people won't even attend a church but a couple years, and then they're off to find another church. And then we wonder why we don't have the same victories. You know what? It takes commitment. It takes organization. It takes discipline. When the devil loads somebody with cancer, he is determined to take them into the grave with cancer. Have we matched that determination with our prayers and our faith? Most of the time, probably not as fiercely if we're going to be honest. So God's, we're not waiting on God. God's really waiting on us. And maybe it's going to take some real pushes against us to cause us to rally. But our greatest hour can be in front of us. It can be in front of us. God's trying to call the troops. Then if you would look at verse 13. Paul says, wherefore. The word wherefore in Greek simply means in light of all of this. In light of the fact that we have an enemy. In light of the fact that he is so highly organized. In light of everything which I have said to you. Take unto you the whole armor of God. And if you were in the first service, you heard me comment on these words, take unto you. Take unto you in Greek is the word ana labete. Well, labete is common. It doesn't mean really anything special. It just means to take something or to receive something. But when you put the ana on the front of it, it totally changes this word and becomes very unusual. Now it's a word that is not used very often in the New Testament. This word ana means to repeat. Repeat the action. Do what you once did. So when you put these two words together, analabete means pick it up like you once picked it up. Receive it like you once wore it. Do what you used to do, implying that the readers were no longer walking in the armor of God that they once walked in. It was laying around their feet. 
And Paul now pleads with him and says, wherefore, in light of what I have said to you, now do you understand, analabete, it's time for you to reach down, pick it up, snap it back on like you once did. You need to do what you did earlier. Put it back on and wear it like you once wore it. That you may be able to stand against or to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Well, what's the evil day? Is that something on a prophetic chart? No, the evil day is any day that evil gets in your day. It's that simple. That's the evil day. When you wake up and something horrible has come into your life, that's an evil day. But rather than just lay down and let it roll over you, if you're dressed in the armor of God, you can say, excuse me, you have invaded my territory, and you can stand against it in the evil day and push it back across the line. And by the way, I want to tell you, sometimes it means you've got to push some people back across the line. Because Satan may be using individuals who are bringing chaos and a lack of peace into your life. And in final moments, you're pushing back against those things. May include putting some space between you and somebody that you love. Though you may withstand in the evil day. And having done all. Stand. Yeah, there's something wrong with that verse. Does anybody else see what's wrong with that verse? I mean, there's something really wrong with that. Because if it really means what we just said, having done all, stand, then we could take it to mean and if you've used the power of God and it's not effective, Stand. If you've had the weapons of God and you're still not victorious, stand. So in a certain way, it's kind of questions whether these things will work or not. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. If they do, wonderful. If they don't, then just stand. Right. If they don't work, how is just standing going to bring us victory? We're just going to stand there while the devil beats the living daylights out of us. Then what does he mean, having done all? Stand. The Greek says this. And having brought everything to an ultimate conclusion. In other words, now the battles are behind us. We have fought all the battles. We've been in all the conflicts. It's all done. Now, having done all, having brought it to an ultimate conclusion, now it's all behind us. It's all done. God reaches into his pocket, pulls out a photo, and says, let me show you your future. And we're standing. 
We're not lying under the enemy with blood flowing from our nostrils. We're not smashed into the ground, but rather we are the ones standing. Now this is so encouraging because all of us in our life have moments when we don't feel like we're standing. All of us have moments when we don't feel like we are victorious, and many of us have moments when we feel like we are just strugglers, and will we ever not be a struggler? Does anybody ever feel like that? Will the battles in my life ever stop? And that's one of the things the devil will throw into your mind. This will never end. This will never end. You're never going to get a break. Attacking your mind, attacking your mind, attacking your mind. So God, the encourager that he is, says, let me show you the end from the beginning. Here's a snapshot. I know what you're going to look like when this deal is all wrapped up and you will not be the one laying on the ground but when we brought it all to an ultimate conclusion you will be standing you know pastor bob and loretta Emeritus. Trying to figure out what people are supposed to be called. You've been through so much. Bravo. You have done everything you've preached. You have walked in places which people could not begin to comprehend. Even if you tell them, they cannot understand. But you know, I told the Ristos this morning, Life goes on. And those things would seem so devastating and so crippling. If you just stick with it, those things go. And when they go, when it's all done, you're standing. You even say, how did we ever get through that? You know what? You just did. And sometimes you do it step by step, and sometimes they are little baby steps. But the issue is tenacity and progress. Don't surrender your territory. You have the ground. You have the power to stand. And you know what? When you're standing and when you're pushing with all of your might, you don't feel like you're achieving a whole lot. In fact, you feel like you are hanging on for dear life. But the devil's not very good at people who don't move. Eventually, he retreats. That's what happened in the wilderness with Jesus. He tested Jesus. Jesus wouldn't move. He wouldn't move. And the Bible says Satan withdrew. Poor season. That's interesting because the Bible never tells us the season when he came back. But it was just for a season. He came back again. You know, Jesus said so much about he that, what? Endures. Have you ever noticed that? He that, what? Endures to the end. Does enduring sound like a pleasurable experience? Have you ever had to endure somebody? 
Jesus said, he that endures. And I'm going to tell you, there's a great part of the Christian life which is just enduring. It's just enduring. But when you bring it to an ultimate conclusion and the whole thing is done, the devil will go bother somebody else and you'll be standing. Now, because of all of this, in verse 10, Paul says you need the power of God. In verse 11, he says, you need the power because you have weapons. And the weapons can't be carried if you're not strong. But God's given you his entire armor. You're covered from head to toe. And here's the reason why you need the armor. Because our combat is not with flesh and blood, with principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, in light of all this, isn't it time for you to pick up the armor which you once wore, put it back on? And then you will be positioned to begin pushing that evil back out of your life in those evil days. You know, this teaching makes me want to pray for the nation. It makes me want to pray for the nation. And can I just tell you one more, one more last thing and then I'm going to turn this over to Pastor Rob. Those four levels of spirits, there's only one level that we really come into contact with, really on a face-to-face -face basis. It's the low-level ones. Those principalities, you never find Paul in Scripture in the book of Acts having a prayer meeting to pray against principalities and powers. We see in the book of Daniel, that's angels and principalities. That is a warfare on a whole different realm. There may be a few intercessors that enter into those realms, but most people, including me, we are going to deal with those things in the lower realm. And the finest way to deal with the spirits in the lower realm is to shine the light of the gospel into people's faces because their minds have been taken captive. The light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, preaching Christ, causes light to come to those minds that have been infiltrated, and the preaching of the Word of God and your testimony is the greatest way to overcome the enemy. It is the greatest way. It spreads the light and drives back 